remaining standing for the reading of God's Word to honor Him from Matthew 16, beginning at verse 21, continuing through the end of the chapter as we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. Now hear the Word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would send the Spirit upon us to give us the discernment that only you can give of this great truth. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. Guide us by taking command of our minds and of our hearts and imprinting upon us and in our heart of hearts the very word of life and the truth. We pray that this word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, would now be wielded upon us in our heart, cutting asunder between soul and spirit and the discerning of the heart. And that you would bring forth life and life abundantly and great joy that today we might stand in the liberty where we have been set free in Christ. And we ask that your Spirit would apply this message to each of our lives and hearts and minds, conforming us to the image of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm picking up where we left off last Lord's Day in this passage where Jesus begins to make a shift in his ministry from the public preaching to a more intimate and private time with his disciples. He begins to show his disciples now that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die, and then be raised again on the third day. He expresses to them the divine necessity of his death, for which then Peter takes a great exception and tries to stop his death, and then Jesus called Peter a stumbling block to him. Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. As we discussed, Peter was merely a pawn or an instrument with which Satan himself was tempting Jesus to find an easier path, to find an easier way, which he had done for the entirety of Jesus' life. Satan had constantly tempted Jesus to find an easier way to life. 
Just like He constantly will tempt you to find an easier path that is not the will of God. But here He's using unsuspecting Peter who was not thinking as God thinks, but He was thinking as a man thinks. Which then allowed an opening for Satan to take advantage of him. But the prevention of death of which Peter attempted was preventing the new creation, the very reason for which Christ, the Messiah, came. And then he turns in this passage from that statement, that divine necessity of his death, to the passage that moves now into discipleship. And Jesus' death and our discipleship are inseparably connected, and we have to understand and see the union between those two principles. Jesus came down from heaven to earth in order to make the new heavens and the new earth and bring the two together in glory. And He needed to do that through His own death. That was God's way of thinking. Now it seemed very strange for Peter, it would seem very strange for us had we had been in the proximity or in the hearing of his disciples at that time, hearing Jesus say this, this would be a very strange way. This is a very man way of thinking about things to, in terms of it was a God way of thinking that we would have been standing against that in a man way of thinking, see. But this world has fallen from its original creation. It's affected the way we've thought about things. We've gotten so used to thinking in a man way of thinking here. But God has graciously promised a restoration and a renewal of the heavens and the earth. And for that to happen, the old world and the old self, the old way of thinking, the man way of thinking would have to die. And that was the picture and the object lesson that God gave us in the flood of Noah and also in the Exodus out of Egypt. Jesus was the way all of that was going to be affected. The old human whose image had been marred in the fall has to be renewed. The old body that carried mortality and fallenness with a distorted image of God that had to die. God's justice had to be satisfied. The earth cursed with the thorns and the thistles and the blood of men would have to die in order to be resurrected and renewed. God had to make all things new. And the way to that glory was going to be through the cross. And the way to life was going to be through death. And Jesus was the pattern of that for us then to follow. Now Jesus' death was so much more than the pattern for us to follow. It was an atoning death. And we cannot do anything to add to that atonement. It was once and for all. But it was the way that He then paved for us as He was the pioneer and the finisher of our faith. It was the pathway in which we would have to follow Him in order to enjoy the very glory that He had prepared 
So Jesus' death was a divine necessity for him to fulfill all that had been prophesied and all that this world needed. And once he cleared that particular principle and truth up with Peter and the others, then he went further to inform them that all disciples must also die a death in order to live a new life. It's true of you. It's true of me. So in verse 24, which is now where we're coming to this morning, he begins to show what true disciple looks like. And it's right in the very context of him informing the disciples that he must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And Now, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus and a follower of him, you too are going to have to die. If anyone desires to come after me, that's what a disciple is. He's a follower. And if anyone decides to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian, there are three things that Jesus said he must do. Number one, he must deny himself. Number two, he must take up his cross and follow Jesus. Number three. But it's important for us to realize what the cross is. See, the cross is an implement of death. The, the cross is not, as some would suggest, a significant trial in your life. Oh, I must endure this cross. I must bear this cross for Jesus. Nope, that's not what it means. It is not some means of merit that one must go through in order to be a Christian. I must bear this cross. Nope. This means your death. The cross is your death. It is a death to the old man, a death to self. It is the implement, it is the, the symbol. And yet it's interesting that Jesus had not even mentioned about his death upon the cross. See, we, we kind of insert that because we've got the full picture of this. The disciples had no clue that Jesus went down on the cross. He just said that he was going to die, he must die. But the cross was, was not something that they were thinking at this time. But he's using this which was the most humiliating and painful suffering and way of execution that the Roman government would use. And he said, you're going to have to take your cross and follow me. Death to who you are as a natural sinner. The way you were born into this world going to have to die. The way of your thinking is going to have to die. The way of your choosing is going to have to die. The way of your living is going to have to die. And the point of the life and death, what he's getting at here, is, is really one of life and death. He goes on in verse 25, and he says there that, no, I'm in the wrong chapter. That for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's talking about life and death. He's talking about life and forfeiting, losing life. 
But he's going to take it one step further to make sure it's very clear. We're not just talking about a, a cross as some trial and, and some kind of second tier level of salvation or discipleship. He's talking in verse 26 about your soul. What profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what about your value? What about those things that you value? Or what will a, give, a man give in exchange for his soul? How, how valuable is your eternal soul? He's talking about eternal matters here. And even the possibility of forfeiting one's soul when he attempts to live and he's not willing to die. And what Jesus is saying here is that His death is a pattern for anyone else's discipleship who is going to come after Him. If anyone wants to follow Me, it's going to be something like what I experience. That's what He's saying. It's going to include suffering and it's going to include death. You will suffer and that old self of yours is going to have to die. If you want to find life, you're going to have to lose it. Being saved is about being a disciple of Jesus. Today, there's a lot of talk about being saved but not fully surrendered. There's talk in theologies about accepting Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. And then you can accept Him as your Lord when your life is fully surrendered to Him. That is rubbish. You accept Him Lord of all or you don't accept Him as Lord at all. There's many corollaries and variations on this theme, but the bottom line is to be a disciple means to be a full-on follower of Jesus Christ. That is what is required to be saved. But what Jesus informs us is so much more than being saved from something. But being a disciple means that you are being saved to something. Both are true. But you must also have the being saved to something when so much of the emphasis today is being saved from something. Be a disciple is to begin the journey of following Jesus by denying yourself and taking your cross to follow Him. You must die to yourself. You are being saved from an old bondage, from an old way of life unto a completely new way of life, a new way of thinking. It's a whole new way of being human that is not originally or inherently natural to your old self. It's a new way of being human. It's quite unnatural for you to be a new human in the way that you were intended to be. Like loving your enemies. Like blessing them that curse you. 
Like doing good to those who hate you and praying for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That is not natural. It's a new way of life. Christian living means dying with Christ and rising again. When we are united with Christ, when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we believe into Him. Not just merely in Him, but we believe into Him. Our life, well, what was it from Colossians 2? For you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you trustingly believe, savingly, you believe into Him. And when we are united together with Christ, we are united together into His death, and then we are raised to walk in a new life. That's part of the meaning of baptism, the starting point of this Christian pilgrimage. This is the narrative that Noah's ark and the floodwaters of judgment were there to illustrate. Where we were carried through the waters of judgment in Christ. When the whole world under us was being judged by the wrath of God. And when we come through this judgment and safely land in a renewed and reconstituted earth. We hear the replay of the creation narrative from Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply this renewed earth. See, this little narrative arc back in Genesis 6 through 9 was illustrative of what our own baptism in Christ is showing us out of the old life and into the new. This is the Exodus story being played out where God's people were in bondage. A bondage that they could not get out from under. And God delivers His people out of Egypt by breaking the forces of darkness with death. The death of the Passover Lamb. And the people go out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea, one of the most momentous occasions in all of Scripture. The sea is before them, and the armies of the Egyptians behind them, and there was God's glory in the cloud between them, and then it went before them. They were trapped. The sea of water, the Egyptians behind But the Passover lamb had been slain for those people. And so God instructs Moses to stretch out his rod over the waters. Very indicative of Genesis 1 and 2. Where God then divides the waters from the firmament and from the earth. And dry land appears. And there the people go through the waters of the sea. Being baptized in the baptism of Moses. Into new land on their journey to a land flowing with milk and honey. Behind them, those waters of judgment then come crashing down on their enemies, 
and they land on the other side and they, but praise God. So momentous. The bondage that they had been held by in Egypt, a bondage that relates to our sin. This is the object lesson. This is the flannel craft that God is using to instruct us today of our bondage to sin and under the curse of judgment being held by even the enemy in the sway of deception. We can't get ourselves out. But here comes Jesus. Here is the Paschal Lamb and the blood that was shed and the delivery and the baptism through the sea on the pilgrimage to the promised land. Being saved out of bondage, but being saved to glory. A new heaven, a new earth where the two come together, where the Shekinah glory comes down, where the tabernacle was then constructed so God could dwell among His people and His presence would be with them. That's what our baptisms identify with today. This is the starting point of our pilgrimage into the promised land and this whole figure of a restored and a renewed creation. And when Jesus comes, it's no longer that historical picture. It is the real event to which all of those things identified and pointed forward to and illustrated so that when it came, we would understand. The power and the significance, and beyond the earthly into the very eternal and to the spiritual. And He is not only the King of kings, He is the King and Lord over all of those dark forces that we cannot even see. And when He comes, He comes to inaugurate the very kingdom of God on the earth. God has always been reigning. God's always been sovereign. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. But now, He is coming to earth to bring His reign here, to restore this earth and to give, restore the image of God in man so that now man can have a renewed life, a new renewed purpose, and this vocation of being this, this royal priest both a king and a priest, to be able to take God's stewardship out into the world and His love there, and then bring up all of creation's praise as a priest and come and vocalize it in Zion. And on this route that Jesus, in order to make all these things true, We now have to follow Jesus through the wilderness into the promised land, which is going to include two things. Number one, a renunciation. And two, a rediscovery. We must renounce the old world, the old life, the old self. The world in its present state is out of tune with God's ultimate intention. And there are great many things woven into our very life that the Christian response will have to be no. No. We have to deny ourselves. 
people will either lose their life or they'll attempt to retain it. And he talks about people who will forfeit their souls if they do not change their values. The only way to find your life here is to lose it. To value what God values. And to cherish what God cherishes. To love what God loves and to hate what God hates. To see it the Godward way. And that's quite impossible for you to do. You're not even going to be able to do this with some Herculean moral effort, as one commentator said. The only way of denying yourself and dying to that old self is drawing strength from beyond yourself and the very strength of God's Spirit by the sharing of Jesus' death and resurrection of baptism. Only God can break the bondage of those dark forces that hold you. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. So you need the ark. You need the Pascal lamb. And you must be willing to deny yourself in a complimentary passage that we've already been in chapter uh, 10 of Matthew. He says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy to be my disciple. See, Jesus must have your supreme allegiance. And no one and nothing can rival that love that you have for Jesus and be His disciple. He who does not take of His cross and slay and put to death the old self is not worthy of Jesus. And for some people, they must look at the possibility of forfeiting some of those earthly relationships in order to have that with Jesus. See, relationships can be idols. There may be something that you have. There may be something that you're going to have to accept to be His disciple. And by accepting this, it's going to be like a killing, a severing, like a death. Because your old self so loved and so clung to whatever that is or was, now, that giving it up doesn't contribute to your salvation. But if you are not prepared to do that, it will keep you from following Christ. This is the forfeiting of your soul. 
If you let things get in the way and let idolatry control you and let the allegiance to those things be more than your allegiance to Christ, it will keep you from being a disciple. Is there something in your life that is so important that you will not give up for Christ? That's the heart of what Jesus means when he says you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's got to be put to death. For instance, if the reason I could never be a Christian is because I am not willing to give up blank for Christ. Now in that blank, could you put some person's name or a hobby or an activity that you deeply love or any kind of manner of lifestyle that you desire? It doesn't have to be a sinful item, but if you say, I am not willing to give blank up for Christ, and that's what he's talking about. If there's something you can put in that blank, then you're not worthy to be his disciple. You're not denying yourself. You're not taking up your cross in order to follow him. Now, you're not saved by giving up that thing. But you cannot become a disciple without coming to grips with that issue and surrendering that to Christ because that was your idol. That was more important to you than Christ. And for some, that's going to be very significant. There are places in the world today and fastly approaching this that it means imprisonment to follow Jesus or being ostracized from your family or even to have a, a, a sentence on your head by your own family for following Christ. A threat to your life, to work, to property. It's important to realize, however, that it is impossible for you to break this bond with your idols to come to Christ. But you've got to come to grips with this. You have to come to the point where you cry out to God to take it away. You can't clean yourself up in order to come to Christ. You need Him to make you fit and release the bondage and those dark forces that keep you held. But when Jesus is more important than anything else in life and you want to follow Him and you just cry out to Him to save you from your unbelief and to save you from your bondage and from your idolatry and to loose your grip on this old world and let it go. Is that where you are today? Is that where your heart is? And if you cry out to Him, He will. Have you ever found yourself repeating the same errors and being in, in sin and you repent and you come back and you just can't seem to let it go? And it seems to have some sway over you. You're not in your own Herculean moral efforts going to repair or, or fix that problem. You're going to have to ask Jesus to save you and release your grip from these things. To be saved from it because He desires to save you to something better. As an electrical engineer, I've been around a lot of electricity even growing up. I was pretty comfortable and desired to play with electricity in all kinds of forms. But there was one summer in my college summer co-op job where I was working for an electrical control manufacturer and I 
was introduced to something I've never been introduced to before, and that's 480 volts. 120 volts, I've been bitten quite a bit by that, and it doesn't scare me, and it doesn't, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to get a little shock here and there, and 240 volts, I began getting more comfortable, but then I just had never thought about it before, but as I remember, they were giving us a class over some of these controls that were controlling 480 volts, and there was something that really stood out in my mind that for the first time, I feared electricity. And they were giving us some protocols that if you were ever near a 480 volt conductor and it were to hit you here, it would constrict your muscles around it so that you could not let it go. Your hand would have been held under the power and restricted such that you could not unloose your grip. And that is the picture of how we are with our sin and our idols. I want to let it go, but I can't, and it's killing me. We have such a grip on them because the dark forces have so empowered our grip that we cannot let them go. And the only thing I can do is to cry out to God to overcome the dark forces that will loose my grip to deliver me. And you have to come to terms with a willingness to be delivered from the grip of those things that you love so much in life. The things you love that you've got such a grip but the dark forces keep it there to kill you. He's arguing for the importance of this. He who wishes to save his life will lose it. And those who will lose it for Jesus' sake will save it, find it, and it will be abundant. See, he's not just saving us from something. He's got something entirely better for us. But the way is through suffering, through the cross, through death, into glory. And he's talking about your soul. If you want to hold on to those things that keep you from being loyal to Him, you're going to lose your soul. Now he asks, what profit is it? If taking that path, you're going to gain the whole world but lose your own soul. What profit is it? Do a little calculus here. Do a little analysis of value. What is there more valuable than your soul? And what would you give in exchange for it? A little fame for just a season. A lot of money for just a season, but eternally. What value? When people can begin thinking on this level of value and something in a bigger... There's hope for them. When they begin thinking about the lesser matters of this earthly life and to get them thinking about Christ and His eternal kingdom and the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, there is great hope. And so once we renounce our life and self-denial and death, there is then a rediscovery of something else. 
a rediscovery of a new life. A rediscovery of what it means to be truly human. And what I mean by truly human, an image of God that is restored in man. See, you don't know that until you die to the old self. So that old marred image can be put to death and now renewed in the image of Christ in knowledge and holiness and righteousness, I can find my humanness in Christ the way it was intended. Now that's going to be a new way. It's going to be a new way of living. It's going to be a discovery Being united in Christ means that that image of God is being renewed in us. And along with that is a different way of living. A different way of thinking. A God kind of way of thinking. A God kind of way of living. The old self was so accustomed to living according to this fallen and marred image that we had a distorted view on life. The things that we thought were, were, were of great value, we find and they just disappointed and they let it. So we find something else and we keep going around chasing our tails with no satisfaction, no end in mind, and it's just an endless vain cycle. Employing all of the, the strengths of the image of God with great mental faculty and and creative energy and with inventive quality only to find that with great ability we have created something that truly has no beauty, truth, or goodness. That we have thought has then facilitated the advancement of mankind only to find out it hastens our death. See, it's... But when you're renewed in the image of God, and now you can see with different kinds of eyes the the great glory that He has for you upon this earth when heaven and, and, and Christ come and marries this all together and the glory of worship and basking in the glory of God, the Creator who is created by the word of His mouth, all that has come into being. And you can take His glory and reflect it out into the world. And you can bring back all of those praises and sing unto God. Sing unto God with Jesus. It's a different way of life. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of making decisions in life. Everything about us now is renewed. And being renewed to live. And there's a discovery of a different kind of life. And we have to learn how to be a different kind of human from which we were born into. Which the old naturalness seemed right, but it never was. Discovering that new life can only happen once you have renounced the old one. It's a renunciation of the old, a dying of self in order to follow Jesus into the newness of life where joy and love and peace flourish. The kingdom of God is within you. 
he says. Now, there's going to be many things that are going to be counterintuitive and initially perplexing to the proper Christian response of yes. Counterintuitive and perplexing to follow Jesus. Yes. 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 Yeah, because we have been so warped and because of our old man has trained us and cultivated us and taught us of a wrong way of living. But now, things that seem counterintuitive and, and against what we would reason are really God's wisdom that we say yes. Yes. And joy is through the suffering. Life is on the other side of the cross. Glory is through this way. Yes. Counterintuitive. Once we begin to get trained in this new life, those things which seem so unnatural, so counterintuitive, with the training that comes along with it, becomes second nature. Oh, yeah, I, I, I see. And then it becomes more automatic. And now we're on our way to trusting God with greater clarity and saying yes to the things God says, begin to think more Godward in this and no to the old manward way of thinking. Counterintuitive and perplexing often is the yes of the Christian response, but the right one. I have a very... Um, a situation, an event in my life that I now get to use for an illustration for about the thousandth time. And I guess I will milk it for every reason that God gave it to me. When I wrecked my, motor, my friend's motorcycle years ago, a friend of mine in Alabama who was my old Sunday school teacher and one that I very much was a good friend with and looked up to and admired, we went to his house in Alabama and he took me for a ride on his new motorcycle with this $1,200 aftermarket paint job with flames coming off of the gas tank, which seems in some ways a little countercultural. And, and I got on the back of this thing and put a helmet on and took and I was like, wow, this is wind blowing in my face, and we come back around off this great romantic little ride, and you know what I mean by that. I've just I'd never been on a motorcycle before like that. And he comes back around, and he goes, you want to drive it? I was like, yeah. And I thought, because I knew it was one down and four up, that I was good to go. And I get on the motorcycle, and I'm going, and I'm in third gear, 25, 30 miles an hour, and a big sweeping turn comes, and I tried to turn the motorcycle, and it wasn't turning. And I tried to turn it with greater force, and over the mailbox, and into the guy's grass, and skidded through, and got up, and I saw the carnage of chrome distributed throughout a neighbor's yard. The air filter was over here. This was over here. That was over there. There's four parts that were no longer a part of his bike. With horror, I sat there and wondered what to do. 
I'm not going to let him come around this corner and find me on the ground with this bike. So with every muscle in my body, I muster to pick the bike up and to sit upon the bike for 20 minutes until finally his pacing couldn't take it any longer and he comes looking for me and I had just gone around the corner and there I was. And there was his bike. And it was horrifying for me. Good man that he was, he... As much as he loved the bike, he took it good stride. He goes, are you okay? I had grass stains from here down to my foot, and I was so glad it was grass and not the pavement that stained me. God preserved me from ripping all that flesh off. I simply failed to turn the bike, when there was a turn in the road. My failure for years has kept me and you away from con ever considering getting a motorcycle for myself. <laughs> you have made documentary films over this accident. You have milked that for everything it's been worth for the last 15, 18 years of my life. Well, as many of you know, I recently purchased a motorcycle, but this time with much more humility. I studied and shamelessly watched YouTube videos on how to ride a motorcycle. Riding a motorcycle for beginners. How to start a motorcycle. How to stop a motorcycle. And 201, how to turn a motorcycle. I studied that one a lot. And I remember watching one of these one time, and I said, hey, Chesley, guess what? You turn the motorcycle by turning the handlebars the other way that you want to go. He goes, what? And I said, yeah, it's called counter-steering. At speeds greater than 10 miles an hour, you have to turn the handlebars the opposite way that you want to turn. It's counterintuitive. Well, no wonder. I wasn't making the left turn. I was going further than the guy's yard. It doesn't make sense. You want to go left, you turn right. When you're coming into a curve at too high of a speed, I'm, I'm told you I'm going to milk this. The last thing you want to do when you're in the turn on a motorcycle is slam on your brakes. Weight goes forward, you lose traction, you're going to lose it. You don't, you don't break in a turn if you can ever help it. Wait a minute, I'm going too fast. I need to slow down. Don't hit your brakes. When you're coming into a turn and there's wet and slippery pavement or there's a bunch of slippery sand, you should not apply your brakes, but you should throttle through the turn. Counterintuitive. What? I mean, I watch video on the physics of motorcycle turning and why this is true. Counterintuitive, perplexing, doesn't seem to be that way. So much of what I was hearing was exactly the opposite of what my natural response was and my intuition would have told me. 
And yet you can read about that all day long. And the knowledge is certainly helpful, but you have to go out and begin living it and practicing it until it becomes second nature. You don't want to be riding your motorcycle all the time thinking about, all right, now am I coming to, you know, counter steering? Some of that. But the more you do it, the more then it just becomes natural. It becomes second nature and then becomes automatic. So you're not thinking, but it wasn't natural. It wasn't. And that's the discovery part of the new life in Christ when so many things seem counterintuitive and perplexing. And you go and you try it. Oh. And then you do it again and do it again and do it again until pretty soon it becomes second nature to you. And then when you're faced with obstacles or decisions, those kinds of things can be automatic because it is the right yes for the Christian, but it would be the no for the unbeliever. So to find life and to live life, you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. And Luke's version of the Gospel would say, you do this daily and follow Jesus. We have to rediscover what really truly a true human looks like renewed in the image of God. What does it look like? It looks like love, even loving your enemy, blessing those who persecute you. Was it not while we were sinners nailing Jesus to the cross that God was demonstrating His love for us in that very act? It's a life of holiness and purity of heart, mind, soul, and conscience. Of putting off of the old man which would have attracted us to some things that we now say no in order to say yes. It's a life of making peace and having peace with God, but sharing and cultivating that peace among God's people. It's a life of glad and grateful hearts. Not intuitive. And perplexing to the unbeliever because when they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him as God and neither were they or you thankful. Start thanking Him gladly and being grateful for everything you have and stop looking at the things you don't have. Die to yourself over here on the things you don't have and be forever grateful to God for what He has done. Or you're just going to be like those in the wilderness who kept looking toward the leeks and the garlics and the things and they could not see the land of milk and honey that God was preparing for them so much more than what they had just come out of. You've got to say no to the world, denying yourself, picking up your cross and dying to that self in order to say yes to what it means to follow Jesus. This renunciation is not always clear. What to renounce. How to say no to things that seem to be so much a part of life that to reject them appears to us as a rejection of some part of God's creation. And how can we say yes to the many things that Christians have not seen as good and right, but dangerous and deluded. 
How can we avoid on the one hand this Gnostic dualism and then on the other hand a pagan life on the other? And we have to work out what styles of life and behavior belong to the corrupting evil of this world which we must reject and denounce and say no. And that part of life and that how that part of living and that style of life and behavior which is a part of the new creation that God is creating in us, through us. And one day will be consummated at the coming of the What part of life is that? And say yes to those. What do we need to be saying yes to that we, we must embrace, that we must struggle for, and that we celebrate? See, being a disciple of Christ will mean that you will suffer in the renunciation of the old self. That is, there's a suffering in dying. And it will mean that you have to die to your old ways and your old way of thinking which can often also be very painful and hard. But it will mean that you follow Christ in faith, learning a new way of life and righteousness and love and beauty, truth and goodness, and the very point of convergence of the renunciation and the rediscovery is the most difficult yet the most liberating place you will ever come. But you pick up your cross and follow Jesus. In verses 27 and 28, he promises a great reward and a blessing for those who are willing to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. To say no and say yes. To learn a new way of life that will truly bring joy and use you as an instrument in this world. Are you willing to deny yourself and pick up your cross and to die to that old self and to all of your idols and all of your other allegiances and loyalties to follow Jesus in a new life and a new way of living? The way of the new heavens and the new earth that has been painted out for us? If so, He promises you life and life abundantly, and life that is full of joy. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we confess that there are so many besetting sins in our lives. So many fears that seem to have control over us. So much of the old man that seems impossible for us. That if we fix our attention upon it, it's hopeless. So we come to you now asking you, crying out to you, O oh God, save us from our sins and from the grip that holds on to our idols. So that the powers of the darkness and the deception of our own heart will be released that we can walk in the newness of life, in liberty 
and joy so that we will not resist the sufferings, but we can, with the Apostle Paul, say, I desire to experience the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ so that I might taste of His great glory. Granted, O Lord, that we would think not as man thinks, but be mindful of the things of God. Save us out of the bondage that kept us under its sway, but unto that good land flowing with milk and honey for which we will battle and yet you fight our battles. May we trust you to follow Jesus today. May it be true of our hearts. May our lives live consistently with this gospel. And we pray this for the blessed sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Paschal Lamb, and for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen.